You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Would you keep your Bibles open to Colossians 3 and 4 with me? I think it's really important. Years ago when we first had technology, I would often use my phone for a Bible. But I've gotten to the place where I just need this, and I find that having an open Bible is a really important piece. And I invite you to take notes in it as well. Today we're going to look beginning in Colossians 3.22 and following. But let me just say a belated happy 4th of July to all of you. Uh, Yesterday, as I mentioned, we were watching some television in the midst of the heat and reminding ourselves of some of the stories from Tracy's great uncle Joe who dropped out of those planes over D-Day. He would tell the stories that he could feel the wind of the bullets along his pant legs as he was coming down. You know, in the midst of COVID-19, what I'm grateful for for men like Joe Fallon and others, they secured for us religious freedom. My father in Vietnam, Tracy's father in Vietnam, and we are dealing with an unprecedented crisis in the pandemic. And I know that many of you are struggling uh, with this piece and how to deal with this, especially as it seems to be rolling over Texas. And I'm aware that many of us are struggling health-wise. And so today, I'm just grateful that we have the right to assemble and it was secured by boots on the ground and some of the greatest men and women who ever assembled because they secured for us that. And I believe that all men everywhere should have the right to choose the God they worship. Nobody should be forced to worship the Christian God or the Muslim God. They should have the ability to choose that. And so let's appreciate what's been given to us and let's not be one of those who have the right to vote and the right to assemble for worship and not partake of it. Amen? Colossians chapter 3 and 4. Today, over the next few moments, I want to speak to you about this, dignity over division. If you've got your worship guide or if you are uh, using the QR code, let us know that you're with us. A couple of things have happened really well over the pandemic, but one of the things that's really struggled with is getting people to let us know about prayer requests. Let's take a moment and complete It really means a lot. We love to connect with you, and so please use those means if you're in our pastors available check with that and know there we'd love to reach out to you you better is a tool of and he is whipping up a frenzy with this thing so you've got to defeat isolationism if you're going to be successful dignity over division we complete our study of the book of colossians and as you're turning in there and getting focused colossians 3 right about verse 22, focuses on slavery. And it does so uh, because slavery would have been an issue in the family of an average Roman uh, family, would have had slaves. Much like Victorian England, they would have had a wealthy family, even the family would have had two to three slaves. He was just mindful of that. Now, critics will say, critics of the Bible will say that the Bible endorses slavery. A critic of the Bible would say the Bible is at worst offensive and at best just out of touch. By the way, no matter what time you live, the Bible's always offensive. If a millennial's reading God's Word, if a Gen Xer or any generation's reading God's Word today and said, well, the Bible is offensive, I'm going to put it down and never pick it back up again, then friend, you need to be aware that no matter what generation you've lived in, the Bible's always offensive. In fact, we could add to that no matter what culture you're involved with. 
If you're part of the Russian culture, the American culture, the South African, any culture of the globe, the Bible's always offensive to every culture. And so if you have the Bible in front of you and you think, well, my first reading of it, it's offensive or it's out of date, I'm just going to put it down. Listen, listen look carefully to this, this next sentence. Only a God, only a God you invent would write a book that doesn't offend you. Only a God you invent would write a book that doesn't offend you. So if you have a God that writes a book that doesn't offend you, then what you've done is made a God in your image. You've made a God that's in your image. Because if there is a real God, he's probably not going to agree with me on every point. I can't amen and preach the sermon at the same time. If there's a real God, he's probably going to offend me at some point. And so over the book of Colossians, what I want to look at to, with you in a moment is if you want a real God that doesn't, one that you don't find in the mirror every morning when you brush your teeth or shave, let's look at Colossians together. First of two big points today, I want you to look at, why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? Two questions we're going to ask of the text in Colossians. Why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? In fact, we may ask this question this way. Why didn't Jesus and Paul just come out and say, slavery is wrong? Why didn't they put that to Ten Commandments, like lying is wrong? Well, let's take a moment or two and do a, what I'm calling a mini deep dive. Can you do a mini deep dive? Is that like a round, a round square? Verse 22 of Colossians chapter 3, look what it says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service, more on that in a moment, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart and fearing the Lord. Now again, Paul will turn his attention in verse 22 to a bondservant because again, they're the extension of the family. Notice that beginning in verse 18, 19, 20, he's writing to the Roman family, the kind of family that he would have interacted with in the city of Colossus. The typical Roman family would have had two to three, if not more, slaves. In fact, what we see here is there were slaves in the church. Go back to chapter 3, verse 11, where we find here, here there is not Greek or Jew, we know that those were in the church, circumcised and uncircumcised. That was a big deal in the church. Barbarian, Scythian, slave-free. In fact, in Colossians, there's four verses here directed toward the slaves, one verse for the master. Some estimates say that one-third of the entire Roman Empire were slaves. And one of the real issues... One of the real issues for those who condemn the Bible because of the way it handles slavery is that you're reading the American slave trade into the Bible. In fact, back in verse 22, I want you to notice there the English translation is the word bondservant. Everything here should translate this simple slaves. It's the Greek word doulos. It means slaves. The reason we don't translate it slaves is because we read the African slave trade into the New Testament. There were many slaves inside your church, inside the church of the New Testament. In fact, one pagan philosopher criticized the early church. He would say that the early church was made up of only foolish, quote, only foolish and low individuals, persons devoid of perception, and slaves and women and children as converts. Christianity was highly popular among those who were slaves. So again, why didn't Paul and why didn't Jesus just simply condemn slavery? 
And let me say it again for the second time. Americans struggle with the reading of the New Testament because we read the African slave trade into our New Testament. Slavery practiced during the New Testament era wasn't the same slavery that was practiced coming from Africa several centuries ago. The African slave trade was, watch these words, race-based, slavery was lifelong, and it was largely based on kidnapping. Remember those three, because the New Testament slavery, not that there was slavery proposed in the New Testament, but the slavery that was practiced inside New Testament was different. Slaves are of all capacities of people. You could find a slave that was a doctor. You could find a slave that was a sea captain, a teacher, an accountant. History tells us that. Now, there were of the worst kind of slavery, those who were mine workers, life expectancy, very short. But they would oftentimes be slaves who would be trusted with children, run businesses, and raise the next generation. The antebellum south of yesteryear, and I'm a lifelong southerner, that kind of slavery was one race in particular. But if you and I were to drop into any Roman city, any of the cities that Paul was writing his letter to, including the letter of Colossians, you could not tell a slave apart from a free man. You could not tell a slave apart from a free woman. They did not have a certain kind of clothes, a certain kind of jewelry, and certainly they weren't a certain type of race. They were not distinguishable. How would I become a slave inside the ancient Roman Empire, the time of the New Testament? Well, some slaves were gained when one country, like Rome, would overtake another country, and then you'd be forced into slavery. Some slaves were acquired because you could not pay your debts. And there you would go into slavery in order to pay your debts. Neither of those two would be the type of thing that we would want to be a part of. And yet, slaves were encouraged to be educated during the Roman Empire. Slaves could even own other slaves. Many slaves, of course, were treated terribly. Not to romanticize the Roman Empire's history of slavery, but oftentimes these slaves would live normal lives. Experts would say that the average expectancy of a slave would be about 10 years. A moment ago I talked about the antebellum South being lifelong slavery as opposed to 10 years in the, in the New Testament inside the Roman Empire. So when a critic says the Bible endorses slavery and tell us the Bible is, is, is offensive, what you need to be aware of is when the New Testament was written, it effectively ended slavery. To quote one expert, F.F. F. Bruce of Cambridge, he said, Paul's letters bring into the atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only die. Only Christianity ends slavery. It sets, if you will, the kindling around the end, the destruction of the fire of it. In fact, we'd say it this way, the New Testament eventually ends slavery because first, the Bible says that every Christian is a slave of Christ. Paul would write his letters and say, I am Paul, a slave of Jesus. If you were to introduce yourself to him and he'd put out his hand to you, he would not necessarily say, I'm an apostle of Jesus, but he would say, I'm a slave of Jesus. Be a great way, be a great way for the American Christian to identify him or herself, that God is God, that he is my master and my Lord. In fact, your New Testament says that calls Moses a slave to God. So the first piece that eventually ends slavery is that every Christian is a slave. The second thing you need to be aware of is the New Testament treats slave owners and slaves 
as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're going to see this in chapter 4, verse 1 in our text, knowing that you are also, that you also have a master in heaven. One of the most effective pieces that Paul does here is to tell the masters, you're not the be-all and end-all. You too have a master. You too have an appointed day when you will be evaluated. So I think facts are our friends, and I think it's important in this time when we're pulling down statues and renaming everything, not to speak about those issues so much, but to understand how slavery is no more. A great evangelical Christian by the name of William Wilberforce of the 1700s, during a time of tremendous spiritual awakening, you and I need to be praying for another spiritual awakening in America today. God knows we need this. And Wilberforce, a politician, rallied together like-minded evangelicals in this great movement. Wilberforce got with another man, a banker, always got to have a money guy, Henry Thornton, and the two of them put together a 20-year effort in the parliament throughout society. And Christians, evangelical Christians were at the forefront of this. Historians agree on that. And they began to work through parliament in the 1800s eventually. And do you know that they were so successful, not only did they end slavery in Great Britain, but they put British gunboats in the seas off West Africa to stop the slave trade. Not only were they not going to trade slaves in Great Britain, but they were putting British gunboats because much of the slave trade was coming out of Africa to the United States of America, but also going to the Middle East. I didn't know that. So great was the popular opinion over those 20 years from pro-slavery to anti-slavery that the Parliament put the gunboats of Great Britain into the waters in order to thwart the slave trade. These great men and women, these godly men and women, these abolitionists of Great Britain soon had their impact upon us in America to end this awful practice. That's how you do a protest. You work at it for 20 years. You don't riot in the streets. You work at it for 20 years and you persuade people. And that's exactly what they did. Now, what results for us in the New Testament as we look at our Bibles here, some would say it's offensive or out of date. The New Testament eventually extinguishes slavery for the reasons I gave you. In fact, chapter 22, of verse excuse me, verse 22 of chapter 3, bondservants, it says, obey in everything that you are earthly masters, not by the way of eye service. So when someone says, well, the Bible doesn't condemn slavery, I'm going to put it down, you would say, no, it didn't do that at all. You're not reading the Bible properly. You have a twisted view of the Bible. Now, as this verse stays here for just a moment, as being a Southern Baptist as all my life. Did my forefathers twist this verse into something that's not? Absolutely we did. We got that wrong. You can twist the Bible then, and you can twist it today. By the way, call a timeout. I wonder how we're messing up the Bible in our day. I wonder what it looks like in a century or now, for two centuries or now. They'll look over our shoulders and say, how could they ever believe that? And so today we come together to say this, as I look at this camera, we need to love one another. We need to respect one another. Amen. A great protest is happening inside the churches who are Bible-leading, Jesus-loving, God-fearing people. 
to look at people of all races and love one another and have dignity and respect for one another. This will be a powerful movement that will continue for generations to come. But let me just say that slavery is not over. There is another form of slavery that's happening here in the early part of the 21st century, the sex slave. In the past several weeks, local Colleyville Police Department has shut down an international sex trafficking website. Numerous underage victims identified in advertisements under the ages of 13 and below. A 13-year-old girl was found in North Texas just this past year. And I quote here the Colleyville Police Chief Michael Miller. He said, I'm proud of the team with our federal partners who relentlessly pursued this investigation. And while I applaud this man and applaud the work of our federal investigators and the men and women in blue. We need these people and we need to bring our Christianity to work with us. We need to be reminded that every man, woman, and child is made in the image of an almighty God. And we need to be praying for another revolution in America today and around the globe because millions of sex slaves are dotted around the globe. And you need to bring your Christianity to your work and you need to bring your Christianity to the computer. Because friend, if you're looking at pornography today, it's likely that many of the young ladies and the men that are involved in that are not there of their own free will. And we need a revival in this nation. We need to bring Christ to them and to free them from their sins and to free them from their God-awful masters. The Bible does condemn slavery. Secondly, how does Christianity impact my job? Freeing the text here in the next few moments because we so frequently don't have slaves and masters. There's something that's powerful beginning in verse 22 that says how we go about our work, how we go about our job. How does Christianity impact my job? Now look at again in verse 23. The Bible says this. This will be something that you ought to take to heart. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work what? Say it with me. Heartily, say it like you mean it. Heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Verse 23. So the Bible calls upon you to make your workplace a sanctuary. If you work in American Airlines or Amazon, if you work for the school district, what would it look like to put a steeple on your workplace? What would it look like if you picture taking the Lord's Supper at your workplace? Because the Bible says we're to work as unto the Lord. Worship is powerful when it happens in these walls. Worship is powerful when it happens with you and the Lord in the pages of Scripture. But listen carefully. If you're working for a place where you don't fit, you don't like the boss, you don't mail it in as a believer in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Christ is so impactful to your life, you don't mail it in. You say, well, I don't like the boss, and I don't like the policies, and I don't like the rules and the regulations. Friend, I'm the boss where I work, and I still don't like the people and the rules and the regulations. <laughs> you don't get to have heaven here on earth. And you don't mail it in. Now, you may not understand your job. Nothing else is open for you, but you, God calls upon you to give 100% because you're to look past your immediate boss to see the boss. The Bible says we're to work as unto the Lord. When I think back over my many years of all the jobs that Tracy and I have had through the years, I think about selling sneakers in the mall, one of my first jobs, and mowing yards, and fueling airplanes during college and driving limousines. And even I first got to Fort Worth working for a delivery place like Texpac. I think about all the myriad of bosses and jobs that I had through those years. 
I think about my wife, Tracy, who's worked in doctor offices, done sales, sold ladies' clothing in the mall, watched children, worked for the city of Fort Worth. We have been blessed by some great bosses. And we've worked for other kinds of people throughout those years as well. But we need to be reminded in all the jobs that we've had, we're not working immediately for the boss that we see, we're working for the boss. And no matter what work environment the Bible's saying, you work for the Lord. You're to put a steeple on your workplace. You're to work unto the Lord. Again, picture taking the Lord's Supper at your place of employment, and you begin to see the type of effort you should put into it. And there's never an excuse. There's never an excuse not to do what is right. Because you and I are working for the Lord. We're to work hard. We're to give all that we have. We're to work for the Lord. Now, surely the best jobs and the best way to work is to have a great environment to work in, one where there's dignity and respect and trust. But there's a reason they give you a paycheck to go to work. There's a reason they give you a paycheck to go to work. They don't pay you to go to Disney, do they? It's called work for a reason. And so as we turn up our sleeves and get into it, what we're reminded in verses 22 all the way through verse 1 is back in verse 17 of Colossians 3. Paul's already told us before he got into this, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So your work ethic, the way that you carry yourself, there should be a smell to that. There should be a, 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 an aroma to that, that you don't need to put a fish on your car. You don't need to put a some sort of Jesus lingo as a t-shirt, they should understand the way you treat people. In fact, someone said to me just yesterday, they were working with another employee at a home improvement type store. They said, I've been in this country for two months and you're the only person who talks to me. You have to be a Christian. And from there, this man began to speak to this, this lady, this mother, this single mom, and encourage her to get into a Bible teaching church. The Bible says, in verse 17, the Bible says in verse 23, we're to work as the Lord. I love this verse. I have three children, and right now, to the glory and the praise of God, they all have jobs. I'm about to get Pentecostal with you and have a little, <laughs> little dance up here. I have got a raise in recent days. It is awesome. Now, as I think about not only my work, but teaching the next generation to work, there's something that I share with one of my boys. Every job, every place of employment here in the text of Scripture, there should always be two signatures to the way in which you go about doing your work. The first signature, whether you're mowing a lawn or you're bussing a table or you're preaching a sermon or you're working at American Airlines, the first signature should always be the signature of God. When I do a job, I should have the signature of God Almighty under that. The second signature is my personal signature. Those two pieces of signature. What do I mean by that? That when I do anything from mowing the lawn to working, even pushing paper, or if I'm a custodian, every time I go about my operation, my place of employment, there should be the two signatures they see. They should see the way I think about God, the way I treat God because He is my boss, and the way in which I go about my work. In fact, verse 22, notice what it says, not by the way of eye service, but as, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. Years ago when I drove limousines, oftentimes what we do is just do sedan back and forth to the airport. And on rainy days, it was very difficult to make that Lincoln Town car pristine clean. And so my boss, 
he was of the other type. You know, there's the great bosses. He was the other type. He would teach us that we were to keep the part of the car clean that the customer was to get in, that back passenger door. So inside my little satchel, I kept a white rag, and I'd wipe down the well in every place. And he would teach us that on those white walls of the Michelin tires, we were to take paint thinner, put a little bit on that rag, and we'd wipe off that. And we would clean that specific part of the car, even though the other part looked filthy, it's likely that the customer wasn't going to see that part. You know what the Bible says here in verse 22? That the customer, even though the customer is what? Have you people not made any money? The customer's what? Boss. Lord have mercy. God help us all. The, the, not just the customer's boss. It shouldn't just be to the, please the boss, but to please the boss. See, there's always a boss behind a boss. In fact, verse 20 and 21 taught us to have our children be obedient. Everyone's under authority. And we too are. There's always two signatures to every job you do. If you're appraising houses, if you're working in insurance, if you're a man or woman of the uniform, as a police officer, no matter what you do, there's always two signatures. Let me just say this as we sort of move this to a conclusion the moments to come. Sometimes work becomes really challenging. Right around 2003, 2004, 2005, I was pastoring another church. It was a difficult, challenging church, to say the least. There were some wonderful people there, and there were some other people there. And I got to the place that because of the criticism and the lack of health in the church, I didn't want to preach. I didn't really want to go to work. I was really under some sort of mild form of depression. And I was turning in not my best effort, and I knew it. Some people will just tell you as a pastor that you did a great job. They're lying to you. You know the kind of work that you do. It was during that season that I, either the Lord spoke to me or I spoke to me. I'm not sure which of the two, but somebody got a hold of me and began to speak the right thing. They said, you know, it doesn't matter the reaction of the people. Your act is an act of worship. You need to go into that room. You need to cross your T's and dot your I's. And I had a renewal. I had a renewal of passion. Not because of the feedback that I was getting from anybody, but I realized what I was doing. I was entering into a period of time. Instead of dragging my feet, I began to put the preparation. The message came first and foremost. It was really a, a powerful time. In fact, verse 22, I was reminded again, I'm not working for the boss, the customer, if you will, the people in the pews. I was working for the one who could see everything. He could see my motives in the bottom of my heart. My attitude began to be refreshed. Now, to be truthful, I don't always please the Lord. But a simple attitude change was powerful. Look again at the text of Scripture. The Bible says here, speaks of employers. Look at verse 25. It says, employers, it says, masters, treat your servants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. The master of the slave, the employer of the workforce, you too have a master. So let me ask this to the bosses in the room. For those of you who have a position of authority, are your employees in a church someplace praying about you, how to deal with you, how to deal with your cantankerous attitude? Are they on their knees somewhere talking to the Lord about how to deal with this dude? 
this woman that showboats on Sunday, perhaps, but when it comes to Monday, it's all about the bottom line. You and I, as position of authority, if you're an employer, we're to treat people with dignity, with respect. There should be coming compliments and a sense of, I appreciate what you're doing. In fact, as we think about this, I'm reminded of the book of James. In chapter 5, verse 4 in James, he said, Behold to the bosses, to those in authority, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the Lord of hosts. You have a boss. We live in an age and time of extraordinary CEO pay. In fact, one particular source says an average CEO pays 271 times the average salary of an employee. This should not be so. There's no man or woman who's worth 271 employees to a company. And if there's any Christianity, one of the things we do is return the wages back to the employers and lift them up and take care of them if possible in all that we can. God wants you to care for your workers. I'm reminded of one widow who would tell me about her husband years ago who worked in a factory in Arkansas. He said he would keep a Bible right here, right here in his breast pocket. And everyone knew, not because he showed the Bible, he knew he was a man of convictional Christianity. God knows we need men and women of convictional Christianity. So how do you treat the custodian? Do you know their name? Do you know their children's names? How do you treat the checkout lady at the store? How do you treat the server in the restaurant? If you're telling them that you're a believer, you're giving a reflection of Jesus, the two signatures. And I want to remind you that even the highest in the organizational chart, you're not the highest in the organizational chart in heaven. You will have a master. So employers, your employees, they need to be treated with compassion, dignity. Yes, you need to get the bottom line out of it. And here, let me turn my attention back to all of us even though who's retired, is we have a place of employment, all of us. We don't need to be idle with our time. Let me call upon us to give two or three matters of attention if we're going to work for the Lord. Always, first of all, always be on time. Be on time. Be a few minutes early. Let your lateness be an exception and a rarity. Secondly, never stand around. If there's nothing to do, go find something to do. Go complain to the boss and say, I don't have anything to do. Give me something to do. Third, look for extra things to do. Tell your employer every so often, I'm really grateful for this job. And when he or she picks himself off the floor, go ahead and just say, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't faint. This one is a, a rarity. I'm really grateful for this job. We Christians should be among the best in our attitude, the best in our dependability, and the best in integrity. And if we're not working hard, we're sinning. Jesus is just that important. He, he is so important. He doesn't just impact my Sunday. He impacts all my week. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.